Thank you. Um, what I aim to do in this talk is just to flag up uh, the principal themes as I see them in Gurney's poetry. Um, it's going to be a little bit of a roller coaster because there are so many. Um, Gurney was a literary musician. Um, he uh, was first and foremost a composer. He started life in Gloucester, born in 1890, uh, the son of a tailor. Um, in around 1900, his musical promise was seen, and he was enrolled as a chorister at the cathedral. Um, he was involved with the Three Choirs Festival, um, and through that he um, came across the work of Edward Elgar. And it was Elgar who spurred Gurney on to want to be a composer. And so around 1904-1905 he started composing, and he was writing songs and organ works and, and piano works, whatever else um, came to mind. Um, he was article pupil to Herbert Brewer at the Cathedral uh, in Gloucester, um, before winning a scholarship to go to the Royal College of Music to study with Sir Charles Villiers Stanford, Stanford the um, foremost uh, teacher of uh, composition in the country at the time. And um, In fact, Stanford schooled a great swathe of uh, composers, many of whom you will know about, Paul Williams and the like. Um, his studies at the Royal College of Music were interrupted by war. Um, he tried to join up straight away, um, but on account of his poor eyesight, he was turned down. And then again, as, as they were becoming a little less fussy, um, in February 1915, he tried a second time and was taken into the ranks of the 2nd 5th Gloucestershire Battalion. And here he is, in the middle, slightly toothy, or toothless, grin almost. Um, and so ensued uh, training at Epping, Chelmsford, and um, on Salisbury Plain. Um, here is another picture, and Gurney is um, there, looking rather mean and gruesome. I wouldn't like to meet him with his bayonet fixed. Um, Gurney had already noted in 1913 um, some health issues. Um, he had a term out from the Royal College of Music on account of what was diagnosed as neurasthenia. Um, it, it's um, probably some sort of manic depression, although I'll go into a little bit more about that later. And so um, he found that exercise, he loved walking. He was introduced to the Gloucestershire Hills as a young lad and um, uh, constantly roamed uh, the Gloucestershire's valley and hills. And he found that walking was a great um, stimulus to his mind and also to his body. It kept him sane and healthy. And so he joined up for what he called an experiment. He thought that the regime and the work and the labour and the fixed regimen of war would actually help his mental state. Um, so route mar marches and regular meals were a good thing. And I think the experiment proved successful and it was one of his most stable times of his life. But um, poetry, I haven't mentioned that yet. That's because it doesn't really exist. And there is none. He wasn't a poet. Um, 1907, there's a, a small book inscription which is just mere doggerel rhyme. Um, 1912, um, he wrote a short thing in homage to Hilaire Belloc, um, the Irish Sea. And he sent it to the eyewitness of publication, but um, it was turned down and he took great offence at this, he being a, a great uh, prototype of, of, um, of uh, Belloc. And so he took an affront to write this, but um, he didn't pursue poetry very much. And the poetry that he knew and loved and worked with was that he set to music. Um, during his life, he set some 330 songs, wrote some 330 songs, which is an enormous amount of music to write. And as we'll come into later, his cre creative life is compressed into a mere 20 years. Um, his first true poem 
came whilst he was training um, in Epping. This is To the Poets Before Battle, a sonnet. And um, this is the beginning of his apprenticeship as a poet. Um, it, it probably arose because of the difficulty of writing music. Um, there was no piano, obviously, although he could um, write it uh, just straight down on paper from, from his mind, working out the melodies um, from his training and the like. Um, indeed, he did so in the front line. Uh, he wrote five songs in the front. And poetry was easier. And uh, so this, he had Wordsworth in mind as he wrote it. But I think there's also um, um, a little bit of uh, um, Rupert Brooke in there. If you think about um, Rupert Brooke's sonnets, 1914, Peace, and uh, Brooke's first line is, Now God be thanked who has matched us with his, his, his hour and caught our youth and wakened us from sleeping. For Gurney it is, Now youth, the hour of thy dread passion comes. And this is the passion, the remnant of Christ's uh, passion. This is his Maudley Thursday. This is his journey from Gethsemane to Calvary, the start of his great reckoning as such. And um, he talks about, Remember thy craft's honour, that they may say nothing in shame of poets. So this poem is hugely important. It is his first true poem. It declares himself as a poet, and it also declares himself as a soldier. None of these things have been facets to his work before, and it is a true declaration. And he thinks that the title poet is something worthy great honour. And he says, make the name of poet terrible in just war, and like a crown of honour upon the fight. It's almost like the poet's going out on crusade. This just war. And honour is a big theme in Gurney, uh, and one we will return to greatly later. And Brooke was an important figure for Gurney. He, he made the pilgrimage to the pink and lily, uh, um, for what it's worth. Um, but um, this is um, uh, uh, a res response to Brooke, I think. But later on, he would write several more. There's a set of five sonnets, 1917, which are written as a counterblast to Brooke. So here we are. He's an accidental poet. And here the poetry may have stopped. But he sent it home, well, sent it back to his friend Marianne Scott in London. And she said, ooh, this is rather good. I'll publish it in the Royal College of Music magazine. And so with her encouragement, he started writing more. He had no little intention of doing so, I think. Um, but um, he continued. And there followed, uh, between um, this point and uh, November 1918, the armistice, uh, nearly 200 poems. Uh, and so she, through her encouragement, gave birth to his poetry. <clears throat> um, and so to the front, they arrived in the trenches on the 25th of May 1916. They had heard terrible tales told by the uh, um, people who had come back from the front in the battalion. And he later recounts that the first arrival in the trenches um, is a poem written in mid-1922, looking back on the war, first time in. After the dread tales and red yarns of the line, anything might have come to us. Oh, sorry, that's to the poet before battle. Just, you've got it on your sheets anyway, haven't you? Yes. Yes, there we are. And first time in. Um, anything might have come to us. But the divine afterglow, this, this divine afterglow, it's the, uh, the glow just following the sunset. Here is beauty in the most unexpected place. Uh, we, we have beauty in amongst desolation, one presumes. Um, and they, he came to a, a, a colony of Welshmen, Welsh soldiers, who told tales and sang songs. And it was 
this is another key point to Gurney's um, uh, time in the trenches. He loved the camaraderie, um, he loved tale-telling, and he loved the singing of the men that um, were out there. Um, I, you can read these later at your leisure. I'm just, uh, just whipping through. I, I hope you'll excuse me. Um, but the, the afterglow, of course, the sky is important in the trenches. And um, uh, because when you're in the trench, you can't see much of the land, can you? Because you're, the sky is above you. It's all you can see. And I, I believe it was the, true that some of the evenings they used to stand to and just face the enemy. And so you'd see the sunset most likely and um, uh, be observing the sky. It, 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 yes, it became very special. But the, the first poem from the front line is hugely significant also, and it tells more of singing. <coughs> Sorry, this is camaraderie. Um, this is taken at Epping in 1950 whilst on training. Gurney is uh, there, obviously. And the bell tents in the background. To England, a note. I watched the boys of England where they went through mud and mire to do appointed things. See one a stake, and one wire knitting brings, and one comes slowly under a burden bent of ammunition. Though the strength be spent, they carry on under the shadowing wings of death, the ever-present. And hark, one sings, although no joy from the grey skies be lent. Are these the heroes? These have kept from you the power of primal savagery so long, shall break the devil's legions. These they are who do in silence what they might boast to do. In the height of battle tell the world in song how they do hate and fear the face of war. This is very much redolent of um, a, a Sassoon poem, everyone sang it. And um, Gurney sets up to music in, in 1921, and um, he sort of captures the, the, uh, the urgency, the, the spontaneity, just a moment, please. And, uh, 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 in his setting, everyone suddenly bursts out singing. It's, uh, it's impetuous, a little sudden rise of song. And, um, um, but the, in this case, the song that was sung was I Want to Go Home. And it's a song that elsewhere Gurney describes as being not a brave song, but brave men sing it. Sorry, you're... I was just going to ask why there's a difference between what's up there and what you recited to us. Mm -hmm. And uh, there it says German beastliness. Oh, did I miss a line? You, no, 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 no. Just no. Your version said primal savagery. As oh, right, oh. Instead of German beastliness. Sorry, do excuse me. I'm, I think I took this one from my PhD edition. That one was from an older version, which had a previous, probably previous um, manuscript version. So do excuse me. <laughs> so this is the one you'll find in the um, the complete edition, I think, when it, when it gets there. Sorry. <laughs> um, this is the incongruity of song in the midst of desolation. Um, as I've already said, um, Sassoon uh, speaks like, likewise of it. Um, and um, song is important as part of the camaraderie. Um, in uh, Kurankor, um, in uh, 1st of April 1917, <coughs> Gurney and his fellow soldiers, well, his, sorry, more music. This is Gurney here holding his baton as part of the 2nd 5th Boston's band. Um, anyway, to move on. Um, yes, at Kurankor, um, they were on rest in the only place that hadn't been. Uh, Desolated by, by um, uh, bombing. 
And um, have he described some of the situation in there? The, the men are all messed down as such. Uh, well, here it is, and fatigues are over, and this queer billet echoes and re-echoes with the sound of tin whistles and mouth organs just issued. And the lilt of some Scottish tunes our crack players are rollicking through make life alive and worth living. Lord, what a hell of a row in here, and what a crush! The backier parcel arrived last night, and we were all most grateful. Everybody was short or bankrupt, and, and the cigar things were most grateful to us stranded wrench, wretches. They are singing Annie Laurie. Oh, the joy of it. And I, I, I urge you to um, go and find Annie Laurie, because it is the most beautiful song. It is. Um, I, I do have a link there to play, but I'm not sure if the sound is connected up, is it? It is. I can um, Let's try it. Oh, oh, oh right. Um, <laughs> no, goodbye. <laughs> 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 I, I don't know what that was. <laughs> he also um, wrote a poem. Oh, sorry, this one is not on your sheets, and I haven't got time to read it, I don't think, but um, this is just a, 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 a poem written later in hospital and um, recounting, uh, re recalling that uh, time of singing. Um, as I've already said, he composed five songs in the trenches, and he had ideas for others that he actually wrote down, or put down on paper, uh, just immediately after his return to Blighty. Um, two of them were songs of homesickness, um, Seven Meadows um, was a setting of his own poem that was long thought to be the only setting of his own poetry, which for a composer of poets is slightly extraordinary. Um, it is still slightly extraordinary to think that in 330 songs he only wrote 15 settings of his own poetry. Um, some of them are quite interesting. Later on he writes things like The Song of Canadian Soldiers, uh, so very relevant. And that one also is extant as a poem. Many of them are not. Um, Seven Meadows was written at Kurankov, by the way. Um, one of the songs he wrote was a drinking song, Captain Stratton of Fancy, um, which he wrote for a friend of his, who um, I'll talk about later. Um, two songs about death, by a beer side and even such is time. I wish I had time to play them to you. Um, uh, it's about death and what might lie beyond the path of life. Um, two songs which uh, I, I believe are certainly the finest um, songs in the Anglophone repertory to come out of the First World War. Um, by the way, side is a setting of John Maysfield, just in case that's of any relevance. Um, throughout Gurney's life, beauty was his watchword. And um, Marion Scott, um, his friend and uh, aide from the Royal College of Music, who was encouraging his poetry, um, later wrote after his death that um, he was he may, remained true to his pursuit of truth and beauty. He never sold out to mammal. Um, he, he never gave anything up for money. Mm -hmm. he, he always pursued it doggedly. And um, in um, whilst on training, he, he writes a poem Winter Beauty, and he says, I cannot live with beauty out of mind. I seek her and desire her all the day. But um, it is difficult, of course, in the trenches sometimes to find beauty. And um, in one of his sonnets, 1917, we find his expression of that. This is you know, a desperate poem, um, but pain, pain continual, pain unending, hard even to the roughest, but to those hungry for beauty. Not the wisest knows, nor the most pitiful hearted, what's the wending of one hour's way meant. Grey monotony lending weight to the grey skies, grey mud where goes an army of grey bedrenched scarecrows in rows, Careless at last of cruelest fate sending. 
seeing the pitiful eyes of men foredone, or horses shot, too tired merely to stir, dying in shell holes, both slain by the mud, men broken, shrieking even to hear a gun, till pain grinds down or lethargy numbs her, the amazed heart cries angrily out on God. And this is about as dark as Gurney can get. It might seem surprising. It's nothing on some of the, the horrors that you witness in Owen's poetry. But, but Gurney always tries to strive to maintain that pursuit of beauty, and he, he can't bring himself to um, talk too much about, um, uh, about the horrors, although they are there. But um, he gives a much more balanced view. Um, but um, he uses it. In um, this uh, poem, Song of Pain and Beauty, O oh, may these days of pain, these waste-deceiving days, somewhere reflower again with scent and savour of praise. He's hoping to use the material that he's gathering from the front line, his experiences, and push them into his poetry and music when he returns from the front. And in December 1916, he wrote to his friend, another composer, Herbert Howells, It is better to live a grey life in mud and danger, so long as one uses it as a means to an end. Some day all this experience may be crystallised and glorified in me, and men shall learn by chance fragments in a string quartet or a symphony what thoughts haunted the minds of men who watched the darkness grimly in desolate places. More often than not, of course, it is his native Gloucestershire to which his mind turns. Um, and he, he parallels the thought of Gloucestershire's beauty with what he's seeing in France. And in this poem, Brubeck, uh, is it, I haven't got this on your hand out either, um, Après la guerre is over, the minds of English boys will turn to Forts of England. And um, here he talks about, um, but I shall ever remember how the poplar shadows dance in the sun at dear Brubeck. And it's just like the poplars dancing in Gloucestershire. And so he goes on to say that um, when they return home and they'll try and forget about the war, those poplars, the beauty of those poplars in Brubeck will remain with him. And so the France, the beauties of France, will stay with him and uh, be a part of him in his work. Um, the associations of place are very important to Gurney. Uh, the evocation of a place name um, is everything in many of his poems. And um, quite often it's curious that um, when he's in a place, he doesn't necessarily refer to them. But when he's somewhere else and referring back to them, he will name them, which is quite interesting, I think. Uh, and it's that, um, that distant evocation uh, which he's seeking. Um, where are we? This, um, Gloucester was, of course, his uh, homeland. And Gloucester had a tower. Um, the cathedral tower is, um, which he, he um, writes in a, a poem which is currently unpublished. That tower which from old has blessed the valley. Uh, that tower of rain-cleansed stone standing dreaming in the soft air. And the true one signal of significance of the great pasture stretch. This is the power and beauty of this tower, and it stands proud in the Severn Vale, the Gloucestershire Vale, and it is a beacon of, um, a, and a guardian over that valley. Um, when he was in France, um, he loved the River Severn. He had a small boat that he used to sail on the River Severn. And uh, the River Somme, he, he found to be akin to his River Severn. And so he's finding little points that um, relate to his Gloucestershire, and, and uh, seeing the Severn in the Somme, he sees um, the, the, the Cotswold um, edge, uh, just by Gloucester, the edge of the Cotswold Hills, in the Picardy Hills as he sees them. And um, Merville, um, this 
is a 1923 poem, a later poem written in French. It's one of two poems written in French, written at this time. Is he the only English war poet to write in French? Curious <laughs> thing. Um, but anyway, he talks about the tower, the tower glittering in the distance, and it still remains softly hidden in my memory, etc., um, etc. Et and um, in a later poem, he um, talks about Gloucester, Gloucester in this tower. But um, it's quite telling that um, he replaces Gloucester's tower for Mervy. Uh, and um, so he's got this association, this double association. Mervy um, stood proud over the plain. It was eventually destroyed, and he, he expressed great sorrow at this in his letters. Um, but um, uh, this is Mervy. Um, it's nothing like Gloucester's Tower, but, but it, it had the same impact over the Vale. Um, also, um, uh, the place names that he passed had great relevance. Um, he later writes recollections of a, uh, a place called E, which just letter Y. It's obviously the shortest place name in the world. Uh, he he sort of writes a poem on this. Uh, and um, then uh, Crazy. But this Crazy, um, he relates back to Gloucester because in 1346, King Edward III defeated the French and regained the Plantagenet lands. And um, he, as a, in praise of that, um, he took the windows from the Abbey at Crazy and gave them to Gloucester Cathedral, where his father was buried, or interred. And um, uh, so those windows from Crecy still stand as the great east window in Gloucester Cathedral. So in, in, in the place name, he wasn't able to go there, even though it's just four kilometers away. He wasn't allowed out um, from his duties. Um, so he had to uh, just uh, you know, dream about it as such. But he revisited it in 1925, the thought of this. Um, one of Gurney's uh, most famous poems, tries to maintain the, the pursuit of the pastoral. And, um, but it, it, it's a, a, a pastoral energy as such. But it's, it doesn't quite work. He, he doesn't quite succeed because <coughs> what he's trying to do, he just cannot bring uh, into the form um, as such. This, um, To His Love, was written in January 1918. Um, it is said that it was written um, to addressing the wife or, uh, of um, his boyhood friend, Will Harvey. Um, because in the midst of the poem, he talks about um, uh, driving our small boat through on the River Severn. And Gurney and F.W. Harvey, who we, whose work we met yesterday in Elisa's uh, uh, talk, I think it was, um, uh, he, he um, also a poet, of course, uh, for that reason. But um, he disappeared in August 1916, and it was presumed he was dead, presumed killed. But then in um, September 1916, he emerged, uh, and he'd been captured. He made contact, and he spent the rest of his uh, um, war in prison camps in Germany. And um, so the Captain Strachan's Fancy, the song I mentioned earlier, was written at the request of Harvey in order to entertain his co-inhabitants in the, uh, the uh, camp. Um, but it's curious that this was written actually quite a lot later, so it could be about any other um, uh, soldier, but he just brought in this little touch of Harvey on, on route. Who knows? It, it may not be a true representation. But he's gone, and all our plans are useless indeed. We'll walk no more on Cotswold, where the sheep feed quietly and take no heed. This body that was so quick is not as you knew it, on Severn River, under the blue, driving our small boat through. You would not know him now, but still he died nobly, so cover him over with violets of pride, purple, 
from seven side. Cover him, cover him soon, and with thick set masses of memoried flowers hide that red wet thing I must somehow forget. Mr. Curiously, that red wet thing. He can't even bring himself to write the words to describe it. He can't, there's, there's no word in the language to describe it, perhaps. Uh, and, um, he, but, um, curiously, he's trying to forget it, and yet he immortalizes it in the poem. There's a curious irony in that. But um, to my um, mind, there's um, some very interesting, the violets of pride, purple from seven side, they're, they're not just violets. They're symbolic. Um, and this is seen in an earlier poem, Purple and Black. The death of princes is honoured most gratefully. Proud kings put purple on in stately manner. Whereas in, later on, um, he goes on to say, in sentimental hymns, weeping her dollar, the mother of heroes wears vile black death's colour. And so this friend, he has died honourably, nobly. He is a lord, a son of kings. He is not just an everyman, even though he may be a mere private who has died and who tried to cover up. He's being dressed in the, the clothes, the flowers of kings, the colour of kings. Um, he wrote a number of elegies to individuals. And um, I'm not sure if any other poet uh, wrote directly um, addressing certain individuals, uh, to certain comrades, um, an early poem. He uh, addresses two ES and I can't remember the other initials, but um, we, we know who those people are. There's another chap, Don Hancock, that he later writes about, who was a good friend of his. Um, and then um, there's Dickie. Oh, it's, it's come off. Oh, oh dear. Oh, dear. Sorry. Shall I just see if I can rectify that? Um, because otherwise you won't be able to see it. Oh, right, you won't be able to see it there. Um, this, um, I'll just leave you to read it if you don't mind. Um, Gurney tells the tale in a letter. Here is a little tale for you. One of the finest little pocket corporals that ever breathed went out on patrol, mistook his direction in the dark, and was shot when about to enter the enemy lines by mistake. His fate was unknown for a fortnight or more, but here in these changes one has discovered a grave with a cross. Corporal Richard Rhodes. Second Fifth Gloucesters. After tea one evening, the whole company that was fit went down for a service there. Quite a fine little wooden cross had been erected there. The Germans had done well. It was better than we ourselves would have given him. And on the cross was inscribed, Here root ein tapfere Englander, Richard Rhodes. Here rests a brave Englishman. And the date. It is strange to find such chivalry in the sight of the destruction that we have left behind us. But so it was. They must have loved his beauty, or he must have lived a little for such a tribute. But he was brave, and his air was always gallant and gay for all his few inches. Always I admired him and his indestructibility of energy and wonderful eyes. And so certainty comes, certainty comes, and the momentary warmness towards Fritz who must have loved his beautiful face and thought of his own beautiful youth wasted in the tomfoolery of war. And so we, we find this affection for Fritz. In fact, Fritz is an affectionate term. It, 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 it's um, sort of a, it, um, In one poem called The Colonel, he, he goes on to the title as Brother Bosch. They're exactly, in exactly the same position as, as the, the Brits are. 
Uh, and um, so it, they're being told what to do from up on high. In fact, there's one damning poem the, to the Prussians of England, which um, sort of talks about the uh, authorities on high and, and the, also the press that behind the lines, um, or back home rather. Um, and, and so the, the, there's this affinity between them. It's not just, as I think was said yesterday, not just the, the 1914 um, football truce as such. Um, and also, um, uh, when the, the lines are often so close together that they can hear each other's music. In, in one of um, uh, Gurney's later poems, last 1925, uh, Serenade, um, he, they, they can hear the Schubert coming over from the German trenches. They say, not this Schubert! Give us hell from Leben! We want hell from Leben! Which is like a Strauss orchestral work. Uh, so, <laughs> Quite amusing. Anyway, um, Gurney also includes the earth in his elegizing. Um, like Edward Thomas and, and John Clare and Walt Whitman, he, he's had a great affinity after the war, particularly with Edward Thomas uh, and Clare and, and Whitman. And um, there's one unpublished poem which I, I think is rather good, and it does what Brooke does, Rupert Brooke does, but rather better, if I may say such a thing. <laughs> Mothers of men, grieve not that earth has taken once more your best beloved to earth again, of double passion made and lonely sorrow. She also is shaken, suffers like pain by plough and harrow. The harvest price of tears, pain, long endurance was yours to pay, and who shall judge if wasted, because their tale of years came not to full? Egypt, France, shall flower more beautiful, for them spring be hasted. And all that strength you tended turned to use wisely was the world's salvation given and willing. Rejoice, your best of blood did not refuse the will of heaven that orders and makes good. So this is, earth too is suffering. Um, uh, Plough and Harry it more like a bomb, a shell uh, and the like. Um, in another poem, the mother, he, he writes about, we scar the earth with dreadful enginery. Um, and um, after the war, um, it's, it's very much um, sort of Rupert Brooks, some corner of a foreign field, but I think it, it, it's a stronger poem myself, but I would unbiased. Um, <laughs> um, after the war, Gurney would seek to reconcile um, the earth, the war, uh, all the loss in a setting of Walt Whitman's This Compost. Uh, the anthem of earth, in which all of the, uh, the, the dead bodies that have been interred, the putrefaction turns to great good and, and makes spring more wonderful. Uh, and he uh, made a big setting of this, a cantata for Baron <coughs> Chorus and Orchestra, which um, hopefully, if, if my postdoctoral research fellowship comes off, uh, I'll be able to, um, um, be able to <coughs> complete. So, watch this space. <laughs> um, there's also a wonderful empathy with the invaded, as well as with the, the people facing them. Um, this is an unpublished uh, poem, uh, which is it's just in draft. It's just sketched. There's, there's very little punctuation in it, so I haven't bothered putting any in. Sorry. Um, to think that Belgium still is crucified, raised up on high for three black years, to shame forevermore, to tender all that bears Prussia's name, who God and man with a fierce joy denied the common life of man, and poured her treacherous <coughs> legions like a tide, Flooding that tiny land where neutrals tame and neutrals stubborn kept themselves pure of blame and held aloof, most pure, most dignified. But England, 
England, suddenly shocked from sleep, reached for her arms, stood upright, wrecked, not fair, and war proclaimed until that Belgium was restored and free in peace, wholly her own. That was the proudest mistress of the deep, most noble, quiet faith time you ever have known. Uh, this is marking the anniversary, um, the third anniversary of the invasion. And um, contrast that with another poem, a sort of poem, written at the same time. A private description of war. Dear Tart, some facts. Dear Tart, more facts. Dear Tart, still more facts. And so the war goes on from year to year, and even from century to century. Uh, it's quite a contrast. <laughs> so, so we've got three years worth of tags there, I think. Um, I lost my way. Um, in, in to think that Belgium, um, uh, Gurney gives the principal reason for, for our involvement in the war, of course. Um, but um, you have on your sheets another, uh, a later tale, um, August, uh, autumn 1926. I won't read it now. It is a tale written, he titles it by Tolstoy. It's written in the manner of one of Tolstoy's parables. And um, it is an allegory for the war, amongst other things. Um, uh, hints of his artistic creativity and relationship with his father in there. But I, I do urge you to read it. I, I think it's a fascinating thing. Um, it's Tolstoy and peasant farmers who, who find this grain that's marvellous and wonderful and other people want to come and share it, and so some share it, but then some um, want to take it wholly and, and invade. And so the scattered neighbours around them come and help to defend um, um, uh, the scattered alliance of good men came to a strange land, willing to die to protect the place sacred to those who live there, to protect its honour, um, if not the grain that was the cause of war. And um, there's an interesting, um, uh, I, I think, allusion to gas in there, um, which, um, where is it? The, the evil that falls or rises like bad mist, which hurls the stealing of the land, appears to be akin to mustard gas. They even choking and builds into what is perhaps a fuller vision of war. The mist of evil, sometimes lit by hell, flashes of poisonous fire. Um, so they're also fighting for the earth as well. So it's reverting to that. Um, the difference between those two um, poems, obviously the, the light-hearted jocular uh, versus that quite serious, is important in Gurney. He was capable of aspiring to the highest mode of thought, and yet he was a common private. And um, he loved the camaraderie with the men and um, the banter that goes on, and he was able to you know, speak quite genuinely, um, uh, genuinely and honestly and truly uh, um, their language. And um, he put quite a lot of um, uh, soldier colloquialisms into his poetry. Um, you'll, you'll find much of it. Um, the private description of war is one of many poems from the war enough to display a great sense of humour, um, which is um, uh, something with which he would have undoubtedly um, entertained his fellow soldiers. Um, he writes about the straightening of mice from shirts, receiving mail and rations such as in these triolets. Good God! No jam! No bread! No butter! Whatever we coming to! Oh, desolation, anguish, utter! Good God! Etc. Etc. <laughs> and and th this one, uh, uh, this second poem was originally titled "Grub" in the manuscript, and he changed it to "Pian," which I think is a wonderful pun on "pan," the, the, the French for bread. 
Uh, there's half a loaf of, uh, per man today. Oh, Sergeant, is it really true? Now biscuits can be given away. There's half a loaf per man today. And peace is ever so near, they say, with tons of grub and nothing to do. There's half a loaf per man today. Oh, Sergeant, is it really true? <laughs> and his tongue is firmly in his cheek. Um, and when he, uh, uh, similarly, when he looks back on some of the incidents of the war, um, when he's, when he um, writes from the asylum uh, uh, later, uh, recalling an incident on Good Friday 1917 when he is shot. Um, he is shot in the arm, and um, he hopes it's a blighty, but uh, he didn't actually get there. Um, but some, some quite amusing um, uh, recollections of that. He, he writes quite a, a bit about um, the uh, incident of his shooting, in, in, or being shot rather, in um, the late poetry. Uh, and so, when suddenly my arm went blazing with bright ardour of pain, the end of music, I knelt down and cursed the double treacherous Fritz to Europe and to English music. Stopping his writing and playing with music. Cursed Pomerania, Saxony, Württemberg, Bavaria, Prussia, Rhineland, Mecklenburg, Pomerania again, but have forgotten Franconia and Swabia. Then said, You chap, she's beginning to move again. I borrowed a rifle, shot one shot to say, These things were so. My arm shall stay on yet. I believe it's a blighty. And to another 1925 poem, To feel my arm wrenched out of gear, feel blood drip. Stand up, curse Fritz for spoiling forever my lovely Bach playing. <laughs> um, as I say, alas, alas, it was not a blighty. He returned to the front, but was gassed a few months later at Saint Julien in Passchendaele and invalided home to Edinburgh War Hospital at Bangor. <coughs> Here he had found, as he had in the trenches, men who would regale him with tales and stories. In the trenches, he spent quite a bit of time with some uh, Scots, and um, the Scottish were particularly good at telling tales, and he loved just sitting at their feet, essentially, and being told tale after tale. And um, in the hospital, he writes a set of hospital pictures, which is rather much, uh, rather in the uh, vein of um, W.E. Henley, who in the late 19th century wrote a set of hospital um, pictures. I, I can't remember the title hospital pictures or not. Um, Henley was another Gloucester poet, and so Guy knew his work quite well and had set him to music in around 1908. Um, and so the Scots were obviously the embodiment of a fine tale teller. Um, and this poem, Abedonian, uh, tells of uh, some of that tale telling by one of the people in the hospital. There's another one, um, uh, Companion Northeast Dugout. Northeast Dugout um, is uh, Edinburgh. Obviously, um, he, he um, writes. He talked of Africa, that fat and easy man, and he just talks talks about uh, how he's just listening to these tales. It's almost like you just wind these people up and tell them to go. In fact, Gurney says that in one of these poems, uh, and uh, you just sit and listen for hour upon hour. And he also wrote rather too honestly uh, in his hospital uh, pictures. This poem here, excursion was not published, although he put it forward for publication. I think it was seen as too close to the bone for those civilians who were trying to back up the uh, people who had just returned from the war. They turned the village band on us, who sat with desperate calm of face to meet the sound storm clamorous. They turned the village band on us, and manners failed. Without a fuss, we vanished in a black disgrace. 
they turned the village band on us, who sat with desperate calm of face. And he fell in love whilst at the hospital with a VAD nurse, um, Annie Drummond, and they were engaged for a time. Um, but so Gurney moved from uh, Bangor to Seaton de Laval for some signal training, uh, and um, uh, whilst, um, uh, sorry, he moved to Seaton de Laval for some signal training, then his mental state sort of reared its head again, <coughs> and um, he was found to be wanting, so he was sent to a hospital at Warrington. Um, the War Hospital, and um, here Annie Drummond broke it off, and um, with this combined with um, the death of uh, a lady in Gloucester with whom he was close, and the death of his father in May 1917, in June 1917 his head was going to pieces, he, he saw the rearing again of this neurasthenia that had been diagnosed before the war, um, and he tried to commit suicide. Um, he was found on the side of a canal in Warrington, just unable to throw himself in. He'd already written to his friends and colleagues at the Royal College of Music saying, my friends would rather know me dead than mad. Um, he moved from Warrington to St Albans, uh, and there was a great flowering of music and poetry there to some limited degree. And then um, he was discharged. It's interesting to note that it wasn't discharged um, with shell shock. Um, it was, um, he had a reduced pension because um, it was, there were mental issues manifest beforehand which were going in their head. It wasn't the effects of war. The, uh, the um, impact of war cannot have helped, but it wasn't the primary reason for his troubles. Um, he worked briefly in a munitions factory in Gloucester and then returned to civilian life. And um, this is um, another poem that's gone off the edge of the page. Um, you've got it on your sheets anyway. Um, but this is a poem that tells of the fear of going back to such, the lack of understanding um, by those. How can they know what we have witnessed? How have they been able to uh, carry on with their, their selling and, and prattle while we've been doing what we have been doing? Uh, it's, it's almost, uh, I think he says, um, um, the heedless town, um, oh, yes. Yet on the grey streets, women void of grace, chatter of trifles, hurry to barter, wander aimlessly the heedless town. Men lose their souls in care of business, as men had not been mown like cornswades, east of Ypres or the Somme, never home again, or beauty most beloved to see. For that London town might still be busy at its sordid cares, traffic of wares. O town, O town, in soldiers' faces one might see the fear that once again they should be called to bear arms and to save England from her own. It's this, this calling back you know, to the powers that be rather than to any enemy overseas, um, saving them from her, their own. Um, there followed an enormous period of productivity. He returned to the Royal College of Music, composed song after song after song, numerous poems. Um, by this time, he was a published poet. His first collection had appeared in 1917, Seven and Song, um, and went through two editions. His second collection, War's Embers, appeared in 1919. So when he moved back to London, he was being received in poetry circles. He was um, socialising with Wilfred Gibson, Edward Shanks and the like, the Georgians, and attending the poetry bookshop. Um, but um, curiously, his, he proposed a third collection to Sidgwick and Jackson, um, but it was refused. In fact, they refused to publish a second print of War's Embers because Gurney, having served his apprenticeship as a poet, 
in the trenches was becoming more individual. And he, he was actually gaining his own, <laughs> own real voice. There's, there's a, a unique voice in there already, but, but uh, he, he's developing a much newer voice. He's taken on huge influence from Edward Thomas. In fact, some of his poems from around 1919-1920 are seen as being too Edward Thomas-like. It's a dreadful thing. There's a um, lovely um, little tribute to Lights Out. Um, I come to the border of sleep. Um, that he writes in one notebook, which is unpublished. Um, Here are the first parts of sleep, it begins. It's a direct, uh, a direct correlation between them. Um, and so while he was continuing his music, he was now a recognised poet. He was, had to wait to become a recognised musician. His first publication was musically came in 1920. Um, so he became recognised as a poet before a musician, even though um, his first calling was music. Um, however, in spite of all this productivity, he started to go downhill, and people became very concerned about his mental state. And in September 1922, he was certified insane, and um, was removed to Barnwood House Asylum in Gloucester. Um, he made a few attempts to escape, uh, and um, was then moved from uh, Barnwood to Dartford, the City of London Mental Hospital in Dartford, where he would remain for the last 15 years of his life. Um, use of memory was now the only thing available to him. And so he was drawing on all his previous experiences, particularly the war experiences. And in fact, much of his best war poetry was written after 1922, particularly 1925, um, a year in which um, the work of Walt Whitman was uh, having a real sway over him. Um, but um, he also began to question the knowledge, ask the question about the war poet. Um, because he was a poet, he was a soldier, these were uh, things of honour, noble tasks, noble um, things. And um, where people like um, Patrick Shaw Stewart have had the title war poets imposed upon them, having just written one poem that might be classed as a war poet, poem, Gurney is embracing the idea. Let me just um, go back to that. Oh, no, oh, God. Sorry, no, excuse me. <coughs> Oh, no, no, go away, go away. Sorry. Um, there we are. And here is a document from October 1923. And at the top, war poets at a glance. Oh, sorry, at a guess. I.B. Gurney, Robert Graves, C.B. Sassoon, F.W. Harvey, his boyhood friend, Robert Nichols, Brett Young. Uh, really? Uh, I'm not sure about that. Uh, Owen, brackets, Wilfred. <coughs> Julian Grenfell, R. Sawley, as he's misremembered um, the, the, the first name. Uh, Peter Cronell, Cronell was born um, 1913, I think, or, or, far too late anyway to be a war poet. Rupert brackets, obviously doesn't think too much of him now. Um, but he, he's, oh, Patrick McGill at the bottom. Um, but he's starting to ask, and he's wondering where he comes in the rank of war poets. Um, this document also contains, it's, it's part of a, a huge sheet, of 18 poems, which none of which are published. Um, some of them make allusion to Flanders or the honour of the war poet, and one um, just begins to ask, is this a war poem just because you make mention of that? Is it really? Just the boundaries between poetry and or, uh, more general description versus war poet are very blurred. Um, and here he claims the place in first five writers of Western Front, um, left alive, perhaps even dead. 
And so he, he thinks he's in the top five warparents. He, he's claiming his place, staking his claim. And um, that is a, a thing of great, great honour. Um, here, he gradually becomes increasingly um, uh, certain of his place. And he starts, by 1925, he's seen himself as the first war poet. He's been writing more, more poems, and he sees what he's writing as hugely important. And so this is the saga of the first war poet of England. It's a set of, um, uh, I think it's four or five little poems within that. That's entirely unpublished. Um, to be continued as such. Um, and um, even so, when he's writing letters, um, the honour of having been a soldier and being a poet, the honour of being a war poet, he doesn't affix any postage for his letters. It's like um, when he was in the war, you write on active service in the corner and it will go off gratis. Um, he was hoping that being a war poet he would, he would be sent off without a charge or such. <laughs> um, but so many of them weren't posted in, in the end anyway. Um, he wrote so quite a few collections which are, are very important. Um, there's one titled Drum Taps, which is now lost. They think, what we think, possibly, but I, I think it's actually contained, it's been consumed into best poems. And it's inspired by Whitman, and he takes many um, titles of Whitman's poems from Drum Taps and renders his own version of them. Um, one collection. Um, Memories of Honour is particularly important, and particularly remarkable. Um, Lurim, which I'm really loving, um, if you get the gender right. Um, this is Gurney making light of the war, uh, and it's, I think it's really great fun. Fritz caught a sight of a fatigue party going down, probably just ended, having escaped observation. So this offended Fritz, and he let fly with everything a powder, cordite, or TNT. One did his boot lace up, one lit his pipe and cursed ration tobacco, and said, boys, this is war at its worst. One blew his nose, one plucked at a dead nettle growing above the trench side, and one made rattle the breech of his rifle in ragtime. Nobody ran. One, having written seven lines to rhyme and scan, so to say, raised his umbrella and cursed Fritz, who never had nor never would produce poets. And at the Red House said sudden, I see that's the one, finished his eighth line and blasted home critics to bits. <laughs> so nobody gets blasted to bits except the critics at home. Uh, and um, they're cursing not the Fritz, not, um, not the Germans, but the Russian tobacco they've got. The only dead thing is a dead nettle on the side of the trench. I think it's a remarkably uh, uh, astute and humorous, very clever. Uh, poem. What does the Red House uh, The Red House um, was the, um, the, the main um, office, the governing office within La Vente Sector. That was the name of the, the, the Second Fifth Gloucester um, base as such, command base. Um, and then you get to things like, um, it's a silent one, I shall finish very soon. Um, who died on the wires? This, you can read it yourself. We are running out of time. Um, but so anyway, this, um, firstly, the buck sackled, he, he um, is very uh, uh, um, aware of accents, and, and, and he, he, anyway, that, that's part of the, the, the camaraderie and the knowledge of people and, and cultures and such. But um, he's being insubordination, sir. Uh, so somebody's saying, crawl through that gap there. Sorry, no gap, can't crawl through there. So, um, <laughs> let's do the other. I'll just wait here, thank you. 
So he, he's not, he, he, he says these things so honestly uh, that one can't help but believe him that these things actually happen. Um, although this is a, a, a later recollection. Um, this was written in uh, 1926, October, oh, sorry, October, November 1925. That's part of the best poem set. Um, but one must remember that um, although it's a recollection of something that perhaps happened in the war, something that's reminded of his memory, and memory is noticeably uh, fallible um, and uh, uh, can fail you. Um, eight years actually in, in Gurney's compressed span of 11 years writing poetry. In those 11 years, he wrote one and a half thousand poems, only a third of which are so far published. So we've got a vast job on our hands in editing the complete poetry. Um, eight, eight years. Uh, two-thirds of a lifetime away, practically speaking, so memory could be fallible. Um, 1927, it became too painful for him to write. And so he stopped. And he was silent for the last ten years of his life. Um, he wrote no more, except for one possibly disputable poem, uh, written in 1929. Um, but... Um, and he was finally reunited with Gloucestershire. He returned to his beloved Gloucestershire 15 years after leaving it, but this time in a, a coffin of elm. Mark Rawlinson said yesterday that um, Owen of Wilfred Owen, my subject is war. But this is not the case for Gurney. His subject is the people and the places. And Stephen Spender, he also quoted, um, if poets of today were to follow the examples of any poets of the last war, it would be rather be that of the realists who described the horror of the Western Front. Not so. That's not the realism of the Western Front. In Gurney, we find a true realism. The balanced recording of the mundane, the thoughts that go through your mind when alone on sentry duty in the small hours of a cold morning, the soldiers, the French civilians continuing their lives close behind the lines. There's talk of them, uh, cabbage patches behind the lines and um, uh, um, continuing their tilling of the soil, women continuing the tilling of the soil uh, while they are practicing throwing bombs and just totally unperturbed by any of the, the, the bangs that are going on. Um, the towns, the villages they pass, the homesickness, the camaraderie, the joys and humour of the ordinary soldier, the rations, the drinking of café au lait in a local estaminet, the French girls, the routines, dangers, devastation, respect for and insubordination of officers, political sniping, honour, despair, thoughts of a signaller and later as machine gunner, which is uh, Gurney's progression through the war, and um, in the latter, notably the shame felt when sitting in relative safety in a gun emplacement when his comrades were exposed in going over the top. This is the realism of war, and Gurney gives, us, give it, gives it to us honestly, openly, and generously. Um, he gives us a full, fully balanced account of all the war's facets. And he is, I think, the consummate war poet, and one might even go as far as to suggest, suggest that he is indeed vindicated by time as the first war poet. That will be fully become apparent once we've got the complete edition out. Um, Gurney's place as a war poet, as measured by the anthologization of his poetry, has grown immeasurably just this last two or three years, um, with representation in the Oxford increased representation in the Oxford Book of Verse, English Verse. Um, uh, Jane Potter and John Stolworthy's um, uh, edition of Gurney, Rosenberg and Owen, I think it's 59 Gurneys in there or something like that. Uh, Tim Kendall, um, Gurney is second only to Owen in that anthology. Um, he is rising, and there is more poetry yet to come. We must remember that um, I, I think Gurney has been marred by this marketable aspect of his life, the most media-worthy part of his life, which is his insanity. And um, that has actually blinded us to the fact that he was aiming towards modernism and trying to do new things. Thank you.
Me parece.